I have an acquaintance with whom I connect periodically in the rhythms of social media. And ordinarily, this acquaintance of mine is radio silent when it comes to social issues. I have heard nary a word from this acquaintance, for example, concerning the matter of immigration or presidential elections or bodily autonomy or human sexuality or gun control or Black Lives Matter. Not a word. But then the issue of student loan debt forgiveness came along. And all of a sudden, this friend of mine came alive. I mean, he came alive. Offering repeatedly on his various platforms a strongly opinionated denunciation of which I was not even aware he was capable. And his denunciation is encapsulated in this post, and this post represents really the last thing I heard him say about student loan debt forgiveness. Here was the post. Why should hardworking people be forced to have their dollars go to paying back other people's student loans? I had to pay back my student loan over time, and it is only fair that other people would have to do the same. Now, I share that with you not to initiate a Sunday morning debate on student loan debt forgiveness. I'll leave that to your lunch table. Get back to me on that. But I do share that experience with you because of the way in which it reminded me afresh of how deeply rooted theories of economic propriety are in this nation's ethos. And the essence of many of these deeply rooted theories, it seems to me, is what might be described as a carefully crafted and cultivated philosophy of earning. A carefully crafted philosophy of earning, a central portion of which is the conviction anything of value, particularly economic value, must be justified by a person's efforts and accomplishments before it can be rightly received. It is a philosophy that undergirds the very architecture of capitalism, does it not? And it's certainly a philosophy that impacts this country's discourse on everything from food stamps to welfare, everything from uh, unemployment benefits to student loan debt forgiveness. And I would argue that it is precisely this carefully cultivated philosophy of earning that makes today's parable from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew so unsettling and perhaps even scandalous. And I am telling you the truth when I say that when I reflect over my years of ministry, there is not a scripture, there is not another scripture upon which I have preached or taught that has generated more authentic frustration, even anger, in the hearts and minds of church people than the parable that you heard this morning from Matthew's Gospel. In the parable, Jesus tells this story about an entrepreneurial landowner who makes the decision to hire some laborers for a day's work in his vineyard. Fair enough. Many of the laborers that he hires work an entire day. They begin in the morning and they work all the way to sundown. 
but some of the laborers receive their job offer later in the day and so they spend a shorter period of time in the vineyard some a half a day some a couple of hours some only an hour and that's where the story gets strange around sundown the landowner distributes the wages to the various laborers and all of the laborers discover that this landowner gives the same payment the same wage to all of the laborers irrespective of how long they worked in the vineyard and can I just ask the question this way doesn't that make the capitalistic hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit this landowner pays all of the workers the same wage irrespective of how long they worked and naturally naturally the laborers who had worked the longest period of time were angered outraged because they were expecting more payment and so they grumble to the landowner and they laud their efforts over the efforts of their co-workers based upon the number of hours that they had worked and they lament what seems to them to be a hugely unfair or unjust set of circumstances and all the more frustrating is the fact that the landowner chooses to play the uh, my vineyard my rules card look he essentially says you have been paid the wage you were promised it's just that I've decided to pay that same wage to the workers who came later and with that the landowner asked he asked two questions that shift the focus in the story from economics to metaphysics and here's the first question the landowner asks am I not allowed to do as I choose with what belongs to me and that's immediately followed by a second question or or are you resentful because I have chosen to be generous end of story by telling a parable like this and by suggesting that the kingdom of God is like this Jesus essentially says to his original his original audience and to this audience here take a look at this story because the politics of God that I am incarnating in my life and in my ministry have something to do with what transpires in this story so pay attention to it it's almost as though Jesus is communicating to them and to us that the politics of God have brought about this new reality in which the grace of God or the distribution of God's grace is now governed by a revolutionary economics in which those who arrive last will find the same generosity as those who arrive first and imagine for just a moment if you want to understand the impact of what it is that Jesus is saying imagine how a story like this would fall upon the ears of those who had come to believe that they really were entitled to a larger portion of God's favor because of their years of faithful service to an institutional religion and I have been regularly throughout my ministry struck struck 
by just how angry people have gotten over this moment of scripture. I don't blame those laborers for being outraged, a woman said to me following a Bible study in which we took a close look at this text. I don't blame those laborers for being outraged. I'm outraged too and I'm not even part of the story. And from another church person, I heard this. Why? Why would Jesus tell us a story that essentially glorifies and champions what sounds like a distorted form of socialism? And I've heard from another church member, how does a story about unfair labor practices help us to understand anything about the nature of God's kingdom? And then there was the church person that shared with me that she saw, she saw those end-of-day workers as being comparable to those persons who lived an unethical life and then experienced a deathbed conversion to Jesus. And I remember her anger. It's just not right for someone who comes that late to Jesus to experience the same reward and blessing from God as those who have served God for their entire life. Please tell me, she said to me that day, please tell me God is more practical than that. See, what I'm trying to get you to appreciate, and I suspect you already do, is that this story is really an assault of sorts on our capitalistic sensibilities. And it's certainly assault, an assault on our carefully cultivated philosophy of earning. But perhaps therein lies the point. If this were nothing but a story about practical economics, let's face it, we would be left with an out-of-touch landowner and a disgruntled workforce. If we pause, however, long enough to consider the possibility that this is not a story about practical economics, but a story about God's countercultural politics, well, then the story begins to morph into an expression of exceedingly good news about a wildly impractical, wholly unmerited grace upon which all of us, all of us, absolutely depend. A decidedly uncapitalistic grace, by the way, that God chooses to pour out on those who arrive last and those who arrive first that God chooses to pour out upon those who are longtime disciples and those who are last-minute thieves on the cross. That God chooses to pour out abundantly upon those who have followed Jesus from their youth and those who have awkwardly stumbled toward Jesus and maybe even away from Jesus over the course of their lives. We get angry with the story, I think. I know I do. We, we get angry with the story because of our eagerness to impose our ideas of economics on the rhythms of God's grace. And what that tends to produce in me, maybe you can relate to this, but what that tends to produce in me most frequently is a rigid typology concerning who it is I believe deserves God's grace and who it is that I believe does not deserve God's grace. And I probably do not have to say anything to you about what that kind of a typology or what the negative impact that such a typology has 
on a human heart and its capacity to love. Oh, and by the way, God's stubborn refusal, God's stubborn refusal to conform to our ideas of economics should inspire at least a quiet hallelujah in our souls. Because the truth of the matter is that not one of us has lived a life that would ever obligate God to compensate us. That's Theology 101, right? There is not one of us who has lived a life that would obligate God to compensate us. So this very day, this beautiful, rainy New York day, was not owed to any of us. We do not have to have it. But we do have it only because of the revolutionary economics of God's generosity. So, if you're angry with the story at all, know that you're in good company. I guess that's what I would say. If you're angry at the story at all, know that you're in good company. But understand that your quarrel is not fundamentally with the story that Jesus tells. Your quarrel is with the absurd methodology of a God who in Jesus has established this really strange vineyard in which laborers find unmerited abundant generosity and where wages are governed by the revolutionary economics of God's grace. What a thing. What a thing. And I would suppose that maybe one of the most practical implications of living with that grace, maybe one of the most practical implications of this story that Jesus tells is that it compels us to see people, to treat people differently, I think. Because after all, if this grace illuminated by the parable is a real thing, if it really is this expansive and this revolutionary, then I suppose that we have to give up the right to see the people that we encounter as these random figures that we are free to categorize and rank in whatever way we see fit. And you know how that goes in our internal monologue, right? I think you deserve grace, but you don't. I think you're someone that I will try my best to love. Sorry, not you. No longer makes sense if we believe what it is that this parable reveals, if we believe that divine grace is not our property to broker as we see fit. Rather, divine grace is nothing less than God's redeemed heir. And by all appearances, God is eager to provide that heir in abundance to anyone, hear that, anyone who wishes to breathe it. And think for just a moment about how that kind of a theology of grace might impact the way that we approach the world, the way we treat one another, the way we connect and value one another. So it was years ago that I served as one of the pastors on staff at a church that had established a ministry relationship with a local county jail. And because of that ministry relationship, interested inmates both women and men, were able to come to that church's Saturday evening worship service under plain clothes, law enforcement supervision, of course. And these were not 
violent offenders, but they were convicted felons, drug dealers and thieves and perpetrators of fraud, criminals. But there they were in our sanctuary on Saturday evening. And I would suspect that some of those folks were there because they had a sincere desire to make some changes in their living, and I would also suspect that some of those folks were there because a sanctuary represented a better environment on a Saturday evening than a jail cell. But there they were. And you should know that their presence in the life of that church was not without controversy. And there were some in the congregation who began to question rather loudly whether or not their presence in the life of the church constituted a threat to the safety of the rest of the congregation. And that's an important question. But as time went on, it became clear to me that the real issue at stake in that was this theological idea that some were embracing. This theological idea that maybe, maybe these inmates did not deserve to be there that perhaps they had forfeited their right to be a part of a worshiping congregation as soon as they committed their crime. It was at a church council meeting one evening that one of the leaders spoke up. And by the way, when I share this, it is not for the purpose of disparaging a congregation that I came to love over time. But if you're going to understand the significance of what I'm sharing with you in this, you have to be able to appreciate where that church is or was at this point in its journey. And at a church council meeting one evening, one of the leaders spoke up and he said, look, I I won't be able to sleep tonight if I don't speak my mind and if I don't share something that's on my heart, so I'm just going to share it. Is there anybody on this committee right now? Is there anybody around this table who believes what I believe? What I believe is that maybe it's safer for everybody all around, the inmates and the rest of the congregation. Maybe it's safer for everybody all around for the inmates to have their same, their own worship service in a different place, maybe a different night of the week. We could provide it. But I think it's important for the inmates to have their own worship space. Silence. As we contemplated the implications of that. And mercifully, one of the other members of the committee was a 17-year-old, I think a 17-year-old high school junior, who didn't know any better but to speak up. And she spoke up out of her heart that night and offered a response that was not only significant but theologically astute. And I won't forget it, because she found her voice and she said, would it be safer? for the inmates to have their own worship space? Well, of course, it's always safer not to be around other people. But then she said, my question is, would it be spiritually right? And that was exactly how she set up her comment. Would it be spiritually right to force our guests into another worship space if we really believe that they are recipients of the same kind of, I don't know, she said, grace that has been offered to us. Would it be spiritually right? I felt like I was in the middle of a parable, quite frankly. I felt like 
I was watching the landowner ask people, are you resentful because I'm being generous? Are you resentful because the church is being generous? And I need to say to you that the church council that night came to the conclusion that it was a 17-year-old high school junior who was giving the best expression to the revolutionary economics of God's generosity and God's grace. And if I'm understanding Jesus' parable rightly, then I would say that Jesus would have come to the same conclusion. And for that, I simply say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen.